Welcome to The Profitable Python with your host, Ben McNeil. On today's episode, you will meet Linus Lee, who is a product engineer at Hack Club, where he is building a financial platform for student hackathon organizers. Linus also serves as director of CalHacks at UC Berkeley, where he studies computer science. Linus' specialty is building performant user interface web front ends. Linus, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is going to be a blast. Uh, just to kick it right off, I wanted to go right into the AI analytics and, and data science area of the uh -huh. interview. Uh, what is the stack of technologies someone should be familiar with to create reproducible and scalable deployments? Yeah, so, so this is something that kind of, as I've been getting more into like running uh, production services, that's really fascinated me. Um, the, my favorite analogy for this is like, you know, in the, in the sort of pre-Docker, pre-container era, you have these binary executables and you build an executable and you like throw it on a server and you run it and it runs. But now we've had, like, this is a problem that's more kind of a most prominent in the Node ecosystem, I think, where you not only have to, like, throw this you know, script on the server, you have this sprawling ecosystem of dependencies and all the things that have to be set up correctly and they have to talk to each other correctly. And so the new primitive that's kind of, I think, an analogy to the old executable binary is, like, a Docker image or a Docker container, right? And that contains all the things that you need to run whatever you're running, and that's kind of the reproducible thing. So I've, I've been seeing a lot more... Docker and then whatever infrastructure you use to abstract over that and be able to replicate that and scale that out. Perfect. The, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about this was, do you believe any developer language is really exempt from this kind of new wave that's happening or should everybody just get on board? I think it's like languages, I think are at a different level of abstraction for this. So um, I've been getting a lot into Go recently and Go actually does a pretty good job of this where you can, it's really easy to take a bunch of things and build like a binary that just you can throw in anything. You can even cross compile from say like if you're running on a Mac, you need to run on Linux, you can compile on a Mac onto, for the Linux runtime and, and run it there. Uh, but even then, the executable that you're building is at a different layer of abstraction than like the thing that you're running, right? The thing that you're running might contain like a database on top of the app application itself, or it might contain like a load balancer. And not everything can be bundled into a single thing that runs on a single physical machine. So uh, I do think it's beneficial to kind of know your way around both, the, both sides of that, that coin. Okay, perfect. Thanks for sharing that. And also part of the pre-interview, you had mentioned you're super excited about uh, federated learning, which I learned something new when I was researching that. What, what are the steps that you plan to take to help you learn more about that? The concept is just mind explosion for me. Yeah, so, so this <laughs> is, I'm also actually not super familiar with it either. I, I just kind of heard about the concept a couple of times talking to different friends. The idea is that right now, a lot of the learning, a lot of the data gathering and learning from machine learning models happens in a centralized place. So you gather a bunch of data from a bunch of different endpoints or, or edges, I guess, in your network, and then you train it in a single place uh, and then you like redeploy that model to all of your nodes again. With federated learning, it solves a problem that's kind of half privacy, half efficiency, where let's say you're like training a keyboard autocorrect model and uh, you want to make sure that you don't, you try to gather as minimal of a data of, of data as you need from people that are typing on their own keyboards on their phones, because that's pretty sensitive data. But at the same time, you want to know kind of what people are typing and train the model on the data that people are typing. So my understanding of federated learning is Every kind of smartphone that's that's doing this training does their own kind of training as like some 
differential or some kind of change on top of an existing model. And then at some centralized place, all those changes are kind of aggregated in a smart way. Uh, so the learning can take place in a similar effectiveness while you don't have to expose everyone's personal data. Uh, this is pretty interesting for me from a kind of principle-based perspective of you know, privacy is becoming an increasing concern and you can do machine learning without compromising privacy. Uh, I've read, a, I've tried to read a couple um, papers on this. I think Google is sort of at the forefront of this. Apple uh, has their machine learning blog and they actually have a pretty good sort of research base on this too, but I haven't had time to get into it much at all. Um, I, I hope to look more into that in the future though. Yeah, thanks for sharing. When I, when I saw that, I was like, holy cow, even for medical, like if everybody was getting certain treatments and they were just able to like train it there like i just it just sounds like such an awesome concept for sure mm, yeah and this is another step also towards like if you have sort of a completely decentralized network training can still take place in that kind of way mm. um, without requiring any kind of centralization at all which is pretty exciting yeah that's yeah well we'll just we'll just leave it there for now but we we might have to revisit this conversation later uh in, mm -hmm. in to come uh what, do, what would it take to get something interactive like Python, but, but to be also compiled? Or is that just like crazy talk? So my sort of um, home turf is the Node ecosystem. Um, I, I've done a little bit of Python work in the past with Django, um, but in, in the Node world, and since JavaScript has kind of taken over the world, we have, we've, tried to, we've like seen some attempts to compile Node into like quote-unquote executables. Mm -hmm. um, there's one by uh, Zeit called PKG, package. Um, and what that does, I believe, is something like you have a node app, you have your package.json, which is kind of your like application declaration. Um, and you can look at that and you can look at all the files that you're depending on and all the files in your app and kind of bundle it into a zip that can execute itself. Um, mm -hmm. And that makes it a little, little nicer for, de for deployments as well as for if it's an app that people need to download. Um, I definitely think it's possible uh, and one of the advantages of that is that you can, it's pretty easy to like cross compile because you just include a version of node that's for Linux versus for, for OS X or whatever. Um, so I, I actually think we're going to see more of this as people start using more scripting and dynamic languages for running apps. Uh, but the feeling that I get is that it's still kind of fragile and easier to break than saying, is it like a C binary, right? Because it's still under the hood, kind of a bunch of files talking to each other. Okay, perfect. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And and uh, just shifting gears a little bit here, I wanted to talk about hackathons. So you you have a leadership role with CalHacks, and I was curious, how has that changed your life experience? Yeah, so so CalHacks is organized uh, in kind of a special way. We're a pretty small team. We're like 20 people. We have a couple of ex executive directors, and everyone else sort of takes on a director role, um, which is kind of funny. People say, like, everyone's a director. Or how does that work? Uh, I, my sort of understanding of it is everyone sort of has a pretty big role in organizing that event. Um, and closer to the event, we pull in, you know, a couple hundred extra volunteers. But in the end, it's sort of a pretty tight-knit core team of, like, 20 or so people. Um, and we all kind of have uh, a large voice in how the, how the hackathon organizes itself. Um, Hackathons, I actually just came back also from HackCon, which is basically an event where like 400 to 500 hackathon organizers come together and we kind of complain collectively about all the problems that you run into when you organize hackathons. It's really great. It's like a big therapy session. <laughs> um, and it's, it's amazing for me in two ways. One is the kinds of people that are interested in organizing hackathons and making this thing possible. Uh, I think also have, happen to be like pretty ambitious and want to do things that are outside of kind of the normal bounds of you go work at a software company. Um, so a lot of people in the past from CalHacks has gone, have gone on to 
obviously the startup world, um, but also just start really cool side projects, open source projects. Um, in the last few years, gone on to do some pretty cool things in the cryptocurrency space. So uh, the, the people that are in the community, I think, are pretty special. Uh, and then obviously, there's the hacks themselves. Um, CalHacks has a program called the CalHacks Fellowship, which I helped run last year, where we, we looked at the hackathons that were coming out of that our, our event, uh, and we saw that a lot of them had a pretty good idea, and it, they, they made it, it works, and then it kind of sits on their GitHub for like the next however many years, hmm. and they never work on it again. And so we, saw, we, we thought, that's kind of sad, that these interesting ideas kind of languish in their GitHub profiles, GitLab profiles. So we give people a small amount of money to, to start out with, workshops, mentors, uh, and sort of a background for them to build up their idea into something more. Um, may, may it be like companies or nonprofits or open source projects. And some of them have actually gone on to become revenue generating businesses, which is super cool. So that side of kind of starting from an idea, going to something that actually is creating value in the world is pretty cool for me. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Is that linked to the dorm room? Uh, dorm room fund. Yeah, dorm room. Yeah, is that yeah. linked to that or? Um, not, not really. So that's a completely separate thing. I just happen to have my hands kind of in all these areas where people are taking ideas and, and turning them into businesses. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, I think kind of my niche. Um, but the Dorman fund is a student run venture fund backed by first round capital. And we invest exclusively in other student founded companies. Um, so we have a team teams kind of across the United States, one in the Bay area, a couple in the East coast. And it's, always interesting to see kind of what people are working on and what problems people are solving and we try to help them out by giving them sort of seed funding and mentors connections in the area to get them off the ground it just sounds like such a cool opportunity um i i, I have some more questions maybe we can circle back around to that here in yeah. a few okay yeah, cool sure. uh so I, I was curious though why are you so passionate about helping students learn to code and make things like where did that where did that come from uh -huh, yes. For, I mean, if, if you think about it, if you're like, okay, I can, I can program, that's kind of my thing. I know like how computers work. Uh, what can I do with it? That, like, the, the first order thing to do is like, okay, I'm going to make an app that a lot of people use. Or I'm going to make some, some piece of software that a lot of people use. Uh, but I think a more interesting kind of second order thing is like building infrastructure for other people to build interesting things. Mm -hmm. So my, my favorite example of this is actually Stripe. So what Stripe did was... There, there are a bunch of people on the internet that want to build cool things and, and make money doing that. Um, and it seemed like getting money to exchange hands on the internet was kind of a problem. And the experience was kind of there, but it kind of sucked. And so Stripe came in and they, they made it a pretty smooth process. And that infrastructure was there. And then a bunch of people could just build really cool stuff on top of Stripe payments. And, and that idea kind of speaks to me where if you can kind of figure out your way around computers, um, one way to, you know, make the world a little better with that skill set is to just make something cool. Uh, but I think a more interesting thing to do is to make tools that then allow other people to build their own stuff. And it's always interesting to see kind of what people are doing with that. Mm. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of where my interest is. Yeah, I, lo I love that so much. That's really awesome. So what would you say to a high school that does not have a hack club on campus? Yeah, well, uh, first, get a hack club uh, and, and see what people are creating. I mean, the, the special thing about hack clubs is is that it's entirely they're entirely student organized. So usually they'll have some kind of a, a faculty or a teacher sponsor, but the workshops are student created. Our website is actually mostly built by our high school hack club students, um, mm -hmm. and everything we build is kind of centered around you want 
to help other students learn how to code and figure out how to use that power to make cool things in the world. And the, the tools that you need, we kind of build ourselves and the, the high schoolers kind of build ourselves. So it's, it's kind of amazing to see these people kind of gain that superpower to figure out what they need and kind of build it out. And I think that that's a really special thing to have on campus, not even if you're not concerned about coding itself, to just see have people in your school that are like building out their own solutions to their problems. And, and they're like, you know, 15, 16, 17. That's a really cool sight to see, I think. Yeah, I can I just I can't even imagine what life would be like if uh, something like that existed at, at my school when I was doing that back in like early 2000s. That's yeah, yeah. And awesome. It, the tools we have today make it so much more interesting. One of the cool things about Hack Club is we have a we have a Slack chat. I think it's one of the bigger ones. We have I believe we have somewhere around three thousand people on our Slack group, mm-hmm. and uh, you know people join every week. They bring their club members together, and uh, there's all sorts of channels. There's there's one channel where it's called Ship, where people just make projects and they post it there, and other people go look at it. It's kind of like our mini product hunt. Uh, that's on the really useful side of things. That an, there's another channel called Count to a Million. Guess what we do? We just count to a million. The only rule is that you can't post two numbers consecutively by yourself. So you have to post like, you know, 1,637 and then wait for someone else to say 1,638. And I, I believe we're somewhere in the range of like 12,000 something. But, you know, so we have fun there as well. But it's, it's a pretty cool kind of community. That, that is definitely awesome. So there was a time, at least for me, where I was, I was actually afraid of code. And I was just wondering, like, what would you tell somebody now? Like like that that fear is just ridiculous or like how would you help somebody overcome their fear of writing code or or getting involved with this type of lifestyle mm-hmm. uh kind of out, of out of curiosity what was your first like coding attempt like what what language did you use or what what did you how did you kind of get into that or try to get so into that? so literally i was i was thrown into it i was going through my petroleum engineering program and i was in a fluid dynamics class and the guy was like okay like the the way that you get to this answer is through like an iterative result and uh, you don't want to be doing this by hand type thing. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't even know what I'm going to get. I don't even know how to do this. <laughs> and uh, at the time I was learning VBA cause like all of the petroleum engineers are just brainwashed into Microsoft Excel and VBA. So mm. that was actually my like first foray into like programming. And I mm. was scared out of my mind, man. I was just like, I'm not a programmer. I didn't, I didn't, I'm not going to school for computer science, but I got over it. Yeah. <laughs> interesting so so my i actually had an interesting experience it's kind of my, my hand was kind of forced into trying programming when i was like in um like eighth grade i was still pretty young okay and i like, absolutely hated it and so I, I quit after like a week of trying it uh, and then i came back later later in the web my, my first kind of entry into it was python and i still had like a windows computer so i downloaded like the i think it's called idle like the interactive environment that you get when yeah. you download python executable on windows mm-hmm. um and i tried to build some stuff with it uh, some like question and answer apps, basic stuff. And I, I just couldn't see the point. Like you, you type in stuff and it, you can like move variables around, but it's not really useful, right? Especially as like a terminal app. Um, and I, it wasn't like I was doing any kind of heavy math. So I don't really see the use. I uh, kind of fell out of love with it. Uh, and then years later, I came back um, through web actually. So, and I'm still, still like primarily a web developer. So I started back with like HTML and CSS. Um, and the thing I liked about that was it was super visual. Um, and every change you make, you can instantly see, just refresh the page and you can see. And that, that I really liked that, that tight feedback loop and also that I could just share it. And I could like put it on my like little dinky Ubuntu server at home and like I could send other people a link and they could go to it and they could read it. And that was really, uh, that was really powerful for me. 
So I kind of stuck onto that and started building websites. Uh, there was a, a point in time I remember where it took me, I kid you not, literally two weeks to figure out how to center something in CSS. This is like a meme in the CSS world, but but like I, it literally took me two weeks. And this was before Flexbox or mm. you know anything like that. So you still have to use like vertical height and like text align and oh god. Um, <laughs> but but that that tight visual feedback loop I think was really helpful. Yeah, and and I guess the key in that story is you found something that really just got you fired up and that was that was like the beginning of the end for you with jumping into code land yeah yeah i think i think another key is like being able to show someone else kind of what you're doing yeah um, like okay. if you make something and it's kind of cool for you that that's pretty cool but i i think the key moment that a lot of people especially like even when i, I talk to people in hack club the key moment that i think a lot of people find is when they start doing something and they find someone else who's also doing that thing and they can kind of kind of share and encourage each other along and see what other people are working on. Um, and, and so I think shareability is another key thing there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And this is the exact reason why nobody is exempt from going to hackathons then. Like, would you recommend any skill level or can you put a little color on that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think a lot of, like a significant portion, I, I want to say at least like 20% for a, a people that go to CalHacks is first-time hackathon goers. Some of them are, when they go to the hackathon, they're literally in their first computer science course in the university. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually really encourage that and we encourage people who like don't even code to go to the hackathon um, because it's, it's less about, especially for hackathons, it's less about like figuring out, you know, how to like architecture a piece of software. It's more like, how do you make something that works? Um, and it's all about the kind of process of going from that idea to something that works and that can solve a problem. Um, and the, the thing that I like about hackathons is, is no matter what you're building, you can't really build something 100% clean in 36 hours. So mm. even for the simple projects, you kind of have to hack, I mean, it's in the word, you kind of have to hack your work way around it. And so it's more about the creativity. Um, so I, the, the kind of most interesting programmers that I know um, actually, all got their start from hackathons where, where they were just like starting out the university. They were like taking their first CS course and their friend was like, hey, you should check out this, this hackathon thing that's happening this weekend. Um, and I know you don't really know how to code, but I think you really enjoy it. They went along and they're like, oh my God, this just incredible world where people just like build stuff. And, and you know, and there's all these like interesting projects and you can just have an idea and, and make it. Um, and so it's, it's all about kind of meeting those people and having the space to be ambitious um, even if you don't really know what you're doing. Yeah, I, I love it. I love the attitude that you have towards it too. This is, uh, this is inspiring for me. I, th I, I think it would be awesome to have something like that in my town. So I wanted, that leads me into the next question, which is why is a financial platform important for student hackathon organizers? Oh boy. Probably in general, right? But yeah. So, uh, so Hack Club actually built this out because the, some of the Hack, Hack Club um, hack lovers, the, the high school students that are in our community wanted to start a hackathon. And so they start going to talking to sponsors and they start, you know, marketing and talking to people that are interested in running the hackathon. And then they realize, uh, you know, the, the sponsor wants to pay us some money so we can like start planning the event. But we're, you know, as high schoolers, you're like 16, 17, you can't open a bank account. Um, there's all these roadblocks that you run into. Right. So, so we built this thing out so you can kind of we kind of take care of all of the financial overhead for you and administrative overhead things like you have to file taxes you have to make sure that your money is in the right place you have to make sure that like all of your receipts and you know expenses are filed correctly and so we kind of 
we, we built out a software platform to take care of all of that so that you can just spend money, get money, and then spend the rest of your time making the hackathon great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it turns out that this is a problem that a lot of hackathons, but also other kinds of communities have, uh, like a lot of user groups, local like small community Python user groups or Rust user groups. You know, to get off the ground, you have to have all this kind of financial infrastructure in place. And it shouldn't be your job if you're a community member in like your local Python group to also know how to like file taxes and send invoices. And so we try to make that pretty easy so that like everyone else can just focus on, you know, running the community. Yeah, I, I love that so much. Just focus on what, what you're there to do and, and add the most value that way. That's yeah. really awesome. So uh, what can you share about learning how to get the Hat Club payment product profitable? Because I know that's something you're working on right now. Yeah, so we, we started last year. Um, it's been live for about a, a year and a couple months. Um, we've done about $800,000, $850,000 in transactions across like 70 events. Mm-hmm. Um, and our mission right now is this thing ultimately only works when lots of people are using it um, because the, the cost kind of makes sense. So we want to figure out basically who needs it the most and who, who is this the most helpful to and then try to make the thing that's the most helpful to those kind of people and figure out ways to reach them. Uh, it seems like right now that's a lot of hackathons and they're like cool people in our community who are doing that stuff. So we've been talking to them, trying to figure out kind of how to solve their problems. The, the, the bit that makes this really interesting is that hackathons aren't just like independent entities. Um, they're events, but these are events that also, as a part of their like circle of things that they have to figure out and work with, a lot of these uh, have to work with schools and universities or high schools, and they have kind of their own priorities and concerns. A lot of them also have to work with, with like students, and that also brings their own share of challenges. Um, and so a lot of this uh, is starting to become about like, how do we understand like what different kinds of people need and then make something where everyone benefits. So it, it makes sense that, you know, hackathons run this thing instead of like, you know, sell, selling to a particular group of people and then doing disservice to people that are having to manage it or having to, having to work with them in schools or universities or things like that. Okay, perfect. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And, uh, I wanted to shift into just the, the uh, art of writing code. If we, if we can dive into it for just a few yeah. So what, what do you say to the developer that tries to write 100% clean code? Please share. Yeah, so 100% clean code, that, that seems like something that uh, my, my take is software is never, like software is, is an ideal, right? It's, it's, it's interesting because it's like an idea, but it's also like a process, a machine. And that's like abstractly, that's so cool and, and, and like a clean idea. But at some point, if you want it to be useful, it has to interact with the real world. Real world. The real world is always dirty and it's always changing. And like one day you have to do this thing, but the next day you're like, oh, the requirements completely changed. And like now this person wants this. And there's always exceptions. Um, and so any software that interacts with the real world always has to be kind of messy. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of writing code and becoming good at it and something that I'm still trying to figure out is not how to write something that's completely clean and super self-organized, but how do you make something that's uh, like, how do you manage that complexity? And a lot of that I think is like, building things that are resilient to changes and building things that are flexible. Um, my favorite thing here is, um, a couple of my favorite things here are names and uh, time zones. Time zones has been my, my like mortal enemy for the last two weeks because I've been traveling, the people that I work with have been traveling. Uh, before I was at, in the East Coast last weekend, uh, the, the person that I had to meet up with there was in like Nairobi. And we had to schedule a meeting when we were both supposed to be in like respectively different time zone. It was such a mess. <laughs> and 
and like sometimes zones, believe it or not, also are on like half half hour time zones. I just and, recently found out about that. Yeah, India Standard Time does that. Uh, yeah, so the, like you can't even express time zones as like just integer offsets. There's all this crazy right. stuff, and like the the trick to it, I think, is okay. The, the world is just messy. How do we make sure that we isolate it and, and we make that part kind of malleable and flexible to changes in requirements, and then. Um, you know, manage that complexity separately so that, that we don't have to deal with that. And like somebody, if something changes, we don't have to rebuild the entire world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I believe you uh, had mentioned something along the lines of uh, make or designing it so it's easily undoable. So, and I was just curious, what tips do you have for someone to make easily undoable decisions in their code? That's what I was trying to get at. Easily undoable decisions. Um, I mean, part of it, I think, is just the, the standard mantra of like loose coupling, small interfaces. Um, the small interfaces, I think, is actually uh, super interesting. This is something that I've, like a philosophy that I've kind of been adopting as I'm diving into Go. And Go is really obsessed with this, not obsessed, but it, it, one of its, its sort of, you know, beliefs in the community is about making small interfaces that do small things well. It's kind of like the Unix philosophy, but, but in the programming world. Mm. Um, so one of the big kind of commonly used interfaces in Go is this thing called um, IORReader and IORWriter. And they each have one, one method each. Uh, and, and their job is to just, if you fit this interface, you know how to write to a pipe or you know how to read, read from a pipe. And everything in Go that has to do with any kind of IO interacts through this interface. And so if that, that's built on that principle is all the things that know how to talk to each other without having to know about each other. And this is kind of obvious stuff that's like CS theory or whatever, but, but if you kind of follow these principles and Go makes it really nice to make really small interfaces, then all of your code kind of follows these rules and they don't have to talk to each other without having to know about each other. So if you can make these parts that are pretty easy to swap out with one another, um, and, and that makes it pretty easy to experiment with different things um, and like do A-B tests and, and things like that. Okay, perfect. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about writing code was, how does one budget and manage complexity in the ever-changing world? And I know you touched on this, but like, do you have any, any more tips you could share with us? Ah, uh, man. If I knew the answer to this, I would, I, I would not be sitting here. I'd be <laughs> out in the world. My LinkedIn title would say, you know, software consultant. I'd, I'd just be going, giving out uh, solutions everywhere. I, I think this is the, the, the big challenge, right? How do you manage, how do you manage like, complexity and priorities? Um, my personal trick to doing that is like going back to what people actually need. Um, going back to the hackathon thing, I spent the entire last weekend just talking to people. Like, here's 400 hackathon organizers who are all here to just complain about the problems. And I can just go talk to them and absorb those complaints and figure out what people actually need. And kind of rooting my, my feet back on the ground and, and listening to what people actually are concerned about I think is really helping me prioritize. These are the things that actually matter, and these are the things that maybe matter less, less and less, like kind of big architectural overhauls or like rewriting certain parts of the things so they're, the apps are they're faster. They're, they're cool, but ultimately the thing that matters is you know solving solve problems that people have, and other kind of technically interesting things are only important insofar as they help me you know, move faster and, and all that all that jazz. So for me, it's always helpful to just like talk to talk to people and, and listen to the problems. Uh, I think that's kind of a key thing that a lot of software developers miss out on. Mm. Yeah, I love it. That's, uh, that's, that's like business building 101. Like talk to your customers. Don't be sitting in your cave. Like get out there and see what they want. I love that so much. 
Yeah, uh, exactly. We need to be reminded of that so often. Like it, it, like you said, it's so easy to just forget that. Like you were saying, people are uh, constantly leaving that out of the equation. So, mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. uh, following up on that, I think we, we've sort of built ways to try to absorb feedback. Like um, everyone has that, that one like bubble on the right, right bottom of their page that's like, hey, it's a chat box. Do you have any, any feedback for us? And those are, are actually pretty cool, I think. But like nothing replaces just going up to people and kind of having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And it, it's the things that people will tell you if you're in person and just talking about their problems is sometimes really different than what they'll tell you when you're like explicitly asking for feedback on a product. Uh, and, and so I think we have to be careful of when we be careful not to confuse ourselves into thinking that the feedback that we're getting through all of these like filtered channels is not the, is, is like, it's not the complete picture and we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that it is. Man, I'm just resonating so much with you on what you're talking about here. Um, it's like the more we get going into the future, it's kind of like that. There, nothing is going to replace belly to belly. That's the whole thing that I that I go <laughs> back. <laughs> yeah, belly to belly. I like it. <laughs> so uh, with side projects, I I mean, this is like a huge uh, uh, a huge thing that that it would be a shame to not dive into this uh, conversation mm. about side projects. Why should we have side projects? Why should we? I don't. I think I think it's less about like should we like th- okay. th- there's this idea that I think I think some people when they're especially when they're like recruiting for jobs uh, like having side projects and like having all the green boxes in the GitHub profile I don't think that's really necessary um, and I, I certainly don't want to you know, dismiss people that that you know kind of work is their work and the life is their life but um, for for me side projects is is like a, a an area to experiment and kind of a creative outlet mm-hmm. uh, everyone has even if you're not working on programming side projects you have your kind of creative outlets, right? Some like if maybe you play guitar or you run or something. For me, just that just happens to be programming. Um, and, and so I spend a lot of time doing that. And it also gives me time to kind of say I'm gonna learn how to do this or work on something without having to promise myself in the future that if I if if that like I'll pull it off. So it's mm-hmm. a, I can be a little more ambitious with my time. Oh, that's awesome. And, and here's, here's another question for you, because I was looking into your side projects. How did you get so damn prolific? Like I've never seen, <laughs> I've never seen something like this before. People need to check this out. If, if they haven't heard of your, like explain here real quick. Uh, I mean, <laughs> are you talking about like the variety or like, what do you, what do you I mean, and not only, not only the variety, but the, uh, the fact that they're so stinking useful, like everything uh, I have I had some notes here on um, like CodeFrame makes oh, yeah. the web things easier. Uh, Study Buddy project, the uh, zero to code. I mean, block CSS like that is freaking magical. I've never seen anything like that before. <laughs> I, I was just curious, like how did like I mean, it's just it's awesome. I've never met somebody so prolific with awesome projects, basically. So yeah. thank you, thank you. Um, there's. I mean, there's people that I look up to with the same kind of like, how do you even pull this off? Um, I I apologize to this person, I forget their name, but he um, he wrote Kimu, the, the QEMU, the emulation okay. software. He wrote um, QuickJS, which is a JavaScript engine recently, uh, wrote FFmpeg. I think his uh, last name is Bellard or something like that. But he, there, there's, the, the world of side projects is, is vast. Um, for me, a lot of it comes down to uh, two things. One is I have a lot of problems with my life and workflow and being productive and I want to fix them. And, and the second tip that I found, the, the thing that I think makes me 
like most productive anyone I'm working on these things is like once you have an idea, um, you need to just sit down and work on it immediately because if you give it you know two or three days to languish, you're not going to feel as strongly about needing that thing or needing that problem solved. Uh, so a lot of these projects that are, that are like sitting on my GitHub, I had the idea and I just like sat down that night to crank out some version of it that works. And then once it works, you start using it and you start having thoughts about like, I wish this, this could work better and you, you find motivation to work on it. But I think a big part of it is just when you have an idea, um, try to build the minimum possible version that still works so that you can start using it uh, and start like wanting to improve it. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And is that, does that also loop in what you just said? Does that also loop in your number one piece of advice for someone working on side projects or do you have any, anything more you'd like to add to that? Yeah. Um, I actually have a whole blog post on this. Um, it's called how I, how I do side projects. Um, maybe we can link to that at the show notes or something. Sure. But, yeah. but, by my two biggest tips are one, when you have an idea, sit down and, and crank out the minimum possible version. And, and two, which I think helps with that number one is as I've worked on more sort of similar kinds of projects, um, I've built up a set of tools that I know really well that like I've read the source code of code behind it. Uh, if anything goes wrong, I'm probably 90% of the time figure it out without having to Google stuff. And that obviously is helpful just for like getting, figuring your way out, out of this, uh, you know, around these tools. But it's also nice because then it helps you stay in the flow. Um, the whenever I'm working on projects, you never want to get into a situation where like you're you're waiting for some like you know page to load or some something to happen or something to compile, and you're like you know you check Twitter once and you're like on Twitter for thirty minutes and you've like lost your flow. Mm -hmm. And and so knowing these tools really well and being able to just say hey that's the problem I've seen before here's how we fix it kind of keeps you in that zone where that feedback loop is again really tight and you're 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 moving forward every single minute and staying in that zone um, is really helpful in getting to that minimum possible version as soon as possible. Okay, perfect. I'm glad you touched on this because I was curious, what is the life cycle of a project for you? It seems like you do like a, like a breadth first approach and then maybe you go for depth or can you just talk about the, the life cycle of these side projects? Yeah. Um, my, my side projects also just to like give context, there's a very high infant mortality rate in my side projects. Um, a, a lot of these ideas die as like, you know, items on a to-do list because mm -hmm. I, I never have time to get to them or like I come back a week later and I'm like, oh, that's actually like, it's a terrible idea. Um, the, the ones that do survive past their like, you know, first year infant stage. Um, I, I'll usually try to get something that's ugly, but, but works uh, in like the first night. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll try to make something where I can, I can kind of use it or I can share it. And then sometimes that, that's enough, actually, which is super cool. Um, there are a couple projects where I've just like built out most of it in a night, and I had to just like bug fixes later on. There are other ones. Um, most recently, I have a project called Ink, which is kind of like my foray into how do you design a programming language and how do you write an interpreter for it. Uh, so it's a it's a language that I designed, and I wrote an interpreter for it in Go. And that was much longer term. And for that, I had an idea, and I kind of sketched out a design, but then. I had to come back every week, kind of sit down and allocate like four to six hours of time, read a little bit into to how this interpreter thing works, try to f find my way out of it, um, out of the problems. It really hit its stride though when I could start writing programs in it. So again, it was like getting to that first MVP. It just took a little bit longer. It took like a month and a half. But once mm. I could write programs in a, in a language that I designed myself and I could run it and it can do things, even like getting the hello world working was like, oh my God, this is so cool. I just like wrote an interpreter. Um, and once it was like the minimum version that was working, it, it was a lot easier to then, I mean, I was using it. So then, oh, this doesn't work. I should just go and fix it. And, and so, so getting to that initial version working was 
is always kind of the most important and, and the hardest part. And after that, it just kind of comes naturally. And then in some projects, don't use anymore, so it just kind of kind of sits there and do maintenance. But um, I think that the, the bulk of it is like getting to that, like knowing what that minimum version looks like, and then like sprinting to that thing. And mm. then once you're there, you're you're kind of in a good place. Okay, cool. And you brought up Inc. I was curious, what is the problem that Inc. is solving? Oh, that's a good question. I'm bored. Um, <laughs> there's there's two ways to look at it. Um, mm -hmm. One is. I, I'm starting to get kind of into lower level programming. And I was, the programming languages always feels like kind of a black box. Um, even for people that have taken PL and compiler classes in university, I think people forget or they don't absorb everything. And, and a lot of people just still look at things like compilers or interpreters, even like transpilers like Babel. Um, it's still kind of a black box. So I, so I wanted to be able to understand that black box. Okay. Um, and, and it's actually pretty simple. Like Inc itself is like 4,500 lines of Go code. Go is already a pretty sparse language, so you can probably read through it and, and kind of figure out what's going on. Um, and it's a really minimal version. It's not very fast and things like that, but it, it, the basics are there. The second problem is that I'm a big fan of JavaScript, but JavaScript has, it's, 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 got, it's got some uh, issues that it's developed over the years. It's like in its adolescence years, and um, it's, it's grown, like the feature set is constantly growing, and it's becoming more complex. But I think mm -hmm. the, the, the idea is the essence of JavaScript is still really good. Um, the way that it does concurrency, I think, is really good. The way that it handles functions, um, and it's like you can you can use JavaScript as a functional language if you want, and I think that's really cool. And so I wanted to distill those ideas and make like a pseudo JavaScript that I liked, that I, that I could be like, wow, this is this is kind of if JavaScript was like redesigned today, and I, I had all the say over what could happen with it. Um, mm -hmm. So that that kind of, kind of satisfied my my desire to I guess fix JavaScript. <laughs> Not, not saying that it is better, but, but it's, it's a start. Yeah, and you probably learned like so much through that experience. Is that, is that a fair, it's, that's oh, what yeah. it's like to me, so. Yeah, it was definitely, I, I learned a lot both about in general, in general like data structures and performance, uh, things like that, but also about specifically how interpreters work. Um, I actually think, speaking of like learning through side projects, the, the projects where I learned the most are the ones where I'm starting out and I'm like, I'm not even sure if I can pull this off, right? Um, this was way back when I was just starting to program, but uh, one of the more kind of popular side projects that I had was a Chrome extension that did like MLA citations automatically for you on websites. Hmm. And when I started coding that thing, I like made a repo and I, I had no idea how you even made a Chrome extension. I just, like barely knew how to put together an HTML page. And I was like, well, I'm just going to try to do it. And I read a ton of documentation and there was a bunch of trial and error, but I ultimately pulled it off and that was one of the more like most satisfying projects that I've worked on, and I learned so much in the process. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the, the projects that I like the most, and the ones where I learned the most, are also the ones where, like in the beginning, I have no idea if I'm even able to pull it off. And sometimes I can't, but a lot of times I can if I kind of you know push through it, and and you end up learning a lot. Yeah, heck yeah. So yeah. I was curious about your perception of full stack developers. Is that too much to specialize in? Full stack developers. Um, I think oh, this is this is such a nuanced question. Uh, develop like ultimately programmers are like this is going to sound like a cliche, but ultimately programmers are like just solving problems. And mm -hmm. to solve most problems, you have to have both like a broad understanding of what everything like everything in that picture, and then some like domain specific thing where you know something really deeply. Um, so I think to an extent, everyone has to be kind of aware of the full stack. But I think most people that are that are kind of good at their craft are usually specialists in some particular domain. Okay. Um, 
for me, that domain happens to be performance. I'm like very, very friendly and close with the Chrome profiler. It's an amazing tool. I think I actually think it's one of the most underrated parts of Chrome as a development tool is the profiler. It's actually really good. Um, but, and I, I'm aware of kind of backend. I can like make my way through it. I can, you know, put together a backend and for a side project, but I'm by no means as familiar with databases and with like permissioning systems as I am with, you know, JavaScript performance and that's kind of my thing. And I think most people are kind of like that. If, if you're good at what you're doing, you're like very, very good at a very specific thing. And then kind of aware of everything else enough to make good judgments. Okay. And actually, since we're on this thread here, I'm kind of curious with your experience, what would be some areas that people could specialize in? So you mentioned like performance with uh, the front end, there's like a whole database piece, there's uh, authentication. I think mm -hmm. you had mentioned some, what are some other options for people to kind of maybe consider? Uh, Cause a, a lot of the audience here, um, like I get questions on Instagram, they're like, teach me how to code. And I'm like, man, there's <laughs> like, there's such, so I'm just wondering if you could kind of give some color to people like, where are these places you could specialize? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is like niches in programming. Um, the ones that I found really interesting are um, performance is the one that I'm kind of most into because it feels like a game. Usually there's like some metric that you're trying to get under the threshold and it's like, is this going to work? It didn't work. Is this going to work? And, and there's like all measuring and experimentation. It's very kind of science experimenting. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I think is really interesting that I hope, I, I wish I had more time to get into in my life was it's graphics, um, mm -hmm. things like, like, uh, like one of my next things I want to try is like, how do you, how do you write a shader? That, that whole world is just completely black box to me. Um, I know that like GPUs are a thing and I know they're very fast at doing things like simultaneously, but I, I don't know much beyond that. So like how, how does, you know, rendering things, putting things on the screen work? Um, another niche I think is kind of systems, operating system level things. Um, so like looking at, the Linux kernel, figuring out um, the different pieces that are going into that, what's important, what, what kind of trade-offs are being made. Um, networking, I think, is another, another niche of, you have a bunch of these, bunch of computers that are doing separate things. How do you make them talk to each other and work together? Um, mm -hmm. That, I think, is actually becoming more and more important as like, each computer is becoming probably less powerful compared to the number of computers that we can build and put together in a single place. So networking, um, another, it seems like another interesting area. Okay, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I'm, I'm sure people are going to be getting value out of that. So I want to talk about your blog post real quick. It went viral on Hacker News. And, uh, and what I think is so awesome about this is that it was a, it spawned from a response from like a tweet. So like literally yes. this little can of worms just like exploded. And then, and, and then it just paid like massive dividends for your personal brand. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering if you could talk about um, like what did you learn about like, like, could you create another viral blog or like, what did you learn about that experience? Yeah. So, so what happened was, uh, I have a good friend on Twitter and we, we kind of tweet and talk a lot about startups and side projects. And one day he was just like, yeah, I know you built, build all these side projects. What's going on behind the scenes? How do you do this? And it actually sat on my timeline for three months. Cause I was like, I'm going to write a whole blog post about this. And then I never got to it. It's one of those things. Um, and, and then I got to it and I finally wrote something about it. And ended up being fairly well received. Um, I, I mean, everyone knows virality. You can't really. I don't even know if this qualifies as viral, but uh, I think a lot of people sort of underestimate what's interesting about them in general. Like mm. as as a commentary on life, as as well as kind of technically. Um, like once you dig deep enough, there's interesting things that that kind of everyone has to talk about. For me, I guess it's like side projects. 
Um, and, you know, that if you have something interesting to, if you, even if you don't have, think you have anything interesting to say, there's, there's probably some kind of story that you can tell that's, that's interesting. Um, this in particular, I, like one, one of the bigger takeaways was that, like, as well as making things, there's a lot of value in talking about what you're doing and why you're doing these things. Um, I obviously have built, built, been doing side projects for a while, but it's a different kind of thing to be talking about side projects and like talking to people about what kind of stuff are you working on and, and why, and what do you find interesting? And um, I think there's a lot of benefit to be had in like having conversations about, about technical things about what people are working on outside of like, you know, GitHub issues and, and, and pull requests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, just like fleshing out your ideas. And then I was curious, like, what was, what was the um, algorithm to creating that? Like, did you, uh, like, I've heard some strategies where they're like, for, for lack of better words, they like puke out an outline and then they go in and like fill it in or like, how, like, how did, how did you uh, tackle that beast, I guess? Yeah, the writing, writing process. Um, yes. That's yeah, the uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I spit it up. <laughs> I write an outline an outline is kind of uh an overstatement it's more like i just make a list of things that i want to talk about and then they i just kind of start adding stuff to it until it has enough content um and then it's like the right kind of amount of information and then i just rearrange a bunch of times mm-hmm. um so outline usually the, the outline that i start with usually is like there is about as many points that i start with in the outline is like there are usually are kind of distinct distinct sections or, or paragraphs in the post um, and then I add a bunch of stuff to it. Uh, I try to make it so that like, usually the introduction ends up being like super long in my first draft. So I, I, I try to cut that down. Anything that's not super related, I try to cut out. And then I do like a first pass proofread for like, is there anything that's just doesn't belong in this or anything that I should add? And then I have a couple other passes for like grammar and, and making sure that it's actually interesting to read. Um, and it's kind of like a coherent thing that has, like it has a single idea that it's trying to communicate instead of just being like, a list of like, here's one thing that I think, here's also another opinion that I have. And that ends up being less interesting. So I try to make it so that it has a, a single thing that I'm trying to say. Okay, perfect. And, uh, and then just to reiterate, like it is, it is all about like, like it sounds like experimenting because what you think might be like the most boring aspect of your life, like people could just totally latch onto and get tons of value out of that. That was yeah. like the big takeaway that I got. Yeah. You, I guess you kind of never know what, what you think is boring that other people think is interesting. Um, and this obviously goes for things outside programming as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like if, you, if you're, I, I actually just read something today that was just talking about, um, this is like a 17 year New York native or, or like a, a New Yorker. And it was a, a really lengthy kind of eloquent, like 2000 word email newsletter about uh, what to do in New York. Um, and it was just so interesting. It, mm-hmm. It's it's not like, it wasn't like the typical, um, typical listicle where it's like number one uh, go to the empire state building it's it's talking about real, like things that you would notice if you're actually living in the city like which subway stations had which kind of ambiances and like you know after a tired day where what kind of bar do you go to and and that kind of mundane stuff it was so interesting to read and like next time i go to new york i'll probably reference it yeah that that makes a lot of sense and uh thank you so much for sharing because i've i've just started recently vlogging myself and it's like man how do i even I don't even know what the heck I'm doing. So yeah, yeah. it's nice to hear kind of like your algorithm to that. And, and uh, there's a chance like I'll try and borrow some of that. So thanks for mm-hmm. sharing. Yeah. I think another, another kind of thing that was helpful in the beginning for me was just not caring if people read it. Um, it, it sounds like kind of yeah. the wrong thing to optimize for, but 
like once you like you don't want to start with an audience and then try to like iterate towards something that appeals to them i mean maybe that's useful if you're like doing marketing but if you just want to you know have fun writing then you want to write and then iterate towards audience an audience that that appreciates the writing um so in the beginning i kind of started with was, i'm just going to write about stuff that i think is interesting and mm -hmm. it wasn't even good writing it was just like here's something an opinion that i have uh and then like eventually i found people that that thought what i had to say was interesting and now there's kind of a, of, of a consistent audience but uh i think you have to start with what you want to say and not with who you think should read it if that makes sense yes that makes sense uh thank you so much for sharing that's awesome so we are we are just cruising through our hour here and i've got <laughs> so much to ask you so i'm just gonna skip some lines man there's there's definitely a lot um like i think you have a lot of value to add when it comes to insight on getting internships is there like one golden nugget that you could hand over to the audience on like your experience. You've, you've worked at Anvil, REPL.IT, uh, mm. Technologies, which is like an ag, an ag company. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Uh, now you're doing like hat club work. Like what is like a nugget that we can download from you right now? Um, so when I was, uh, this past summer I was with Replit and one of the things that, um, uh, Amjad, the, the CEO from that company told me when we were kind of doing like an exit debrief from the interview, um, was uh, we, we had like a technical interview round for the internship and then like a let's make sure you're not an insane person kind of culture fit round. Um, and one of the things he said was by the time you, you were interviewing with us, I kind of had my mindset, uh, which I thought was interesting. So I asked, why, 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 why did you base that off on? Mm -hmm. And he was like, I looked at your kind of the stuff you've worked on and the things you've talked about in the past in your writing. And I thought, you know, that, that's that kind of body of work is a lot more of the the right gauge of what kind of work you're going to do than like a 30 minute work session right mm. um so whether it's side projects or like blog post writing or just kind of social media what you talk about publicly uh, i think it's really helpful to be able to point to a body of work and say this is what i i've done in the past and it kind of signals what you what might you what you might do be doing um if you've got an internship or a job yeah, that is that is a huge nugget. Thank you for sharing. Um, I will I will be chewing on that for months to come. So thank you very much. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. So uh, if you lost it all and had to start over tomorrow, what would you do to get back on your feet in like six months and get profitable type thing? Yeah. Um, so you asked me this before we had the interview, actually, and mm -hmm. I thought this was really interesting. Um, like if if I lost all of my current kind of expertise and network. Um, that's that's a really hard question. I think I would probably start out with like finding a niche. It's always a lot easier to um, kind of be really good at a really small thing. Um, so I would try to kind of shop around in different areas, like maybe it's graphics, maybe it's networking, maybe it's performance, but I try to shop around and find something that I actually like working on um, and then just dive really deep into it. Um, the way that I learned, I, I learned best was is by watching talks on YouTube. So there are days when I just like sit on a couch and just like put together a, a playlist and I just let it play through. Um, so I'd probably find a niche and try to absorb as much information I can just through like watching talks or, or reading blog posts. Um, and then once I do that, I'm probably gonna, I, I probably, I should probably try to like build interesting things, um, both technically and kind of in terms of what problems it's solving. So again, sort of side projects, things like that. Um, and maybe go to meetups and, Eventually, once you once you do those things, I think you'll start to hopefully meet people or find people that that think what you're doing is kind of interesting, mm -hmm. or at least know you as someone that has a particular set of skills in a niche, and maybe they need that niche, and 
that's how I would try to go about it. Perfect. And I know a lot of people get kind of hung up on niche picking. Do you have any insight on like a process that somebody could go through to help select a niche? Hmm. Um, for me, at least, it was kind of what what felt the most fun. Um, like, I think graphics, for example, is really interesting. But whenever every time I try to dive into it, I always get stuck on like the, the syntax of GLSL, which is the, the language that used to write shaders, uh, and like these various things that I, I like. There's always varies that I hit. Whereas, like in um, in performance, I could kind of dive into it. And so I think it's kind of half luck and half just try to find something that feels less like work mm. um, and like you, you don't have to pick the perfect one right like it's not like you declare this is my niche and like now you're forever stuck in that niche for until you die um, you can switch off of it um, but I think a good place to start out with is like what feels less like work to you and what, what feels more like something that you might enjoy doing and diving deep into and what are you actually really curious about and that's like a starting point and maybe if you don't like it or you find something better in the future you can like switch into that other niche Okay, perfect. Thanks for sharing. So I've got a little lightning round. Uh, these are questions just like fire away with your kind of first res first idea that you have there. So, mm -hmm. uh, okay, first question here. What is the best advice you have ever received? Uh, that's a lightning round question. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe this was the last question before the lightning round. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. Best advice I've ever received. Um, most advice, I mean, this is cliche, but most advice is, is, is like, be selective about what advice you actually take. Um, okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, what, what kind of hobbies do you like to do outside of programming? I am big into playing the piano. Awesome. Uh, I, I actually really miss it because I'm, I'm in like a small apartment right now and I don't have an acoustic piano to play around with. Uh, but yeah, it's good music. Awesome. And what is the best non-technical book that exists on the planet as far as you're concerned? Uh, non technical book. I'll name two. I'll cheat. One, okay. um, Harry Potter, because I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Awesome. Um, two, the, 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 the first kind of um, like professional self-help book that I ever read is, is a book called Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi. Um, it's a book on like ostensibly on networking, but it's actually about like how do you meet people? How do you like grow your personal network? Um, mm -hmm. It's like actually written really well and had a lot of good ideas in it. Perfect. Yeah, that's on my bookshelf too. Thank you for uh, sharing that. Okay, yeah. best video game ever made. Go. Uh, I heard I hear a lot of good things about Undertale. Undertale. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, new programming languages for somebody to check out. Go. Go. Awesome. Go. And uh, I guess the the last last question here is, what is your call to action? Where can people find you? That sort of thing. Yeah, um, if you're ever interested in kind of what I'm working on, I'm very active on Twitter, uh, at The Cephist. Um, actually, I'm The Cephist everywhere, but on Twitter, I'm the most active. Um, and I also have a blog where I try to talk about what I'm learning. Sometimes it's about tech. I want to do a big thing on, like, how do you write an interpreter? Because I think that's really interesting. Um, sometimes it's about not tech. Like, another thing that I'm writing is, like, I'm just, like, entering headfirst into the world of, like, sales. And sales is so weird, and there's so much stuff I'm learning. So, um it's just like a place where it's just dump thoughts. Um, and um, it's .co. Um, So you can find my writing there and you can find my other, you know, less valuable thoughts on Twitter. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'll make sure that folks have access to all these links on there. So do you, do you have any uh, final words? Did we leave anything off the table that you wanted to tell the audience? Um, no, just uh, if you're ever organizing a hackathon, go check out Hack Love Think. 
perfect. All right. Well, Linus, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, I wish you the best of luck. It sounds like you have a lot of really cool things going for you. Sounds good. Thanks.